It really is such a joy to, to watch um, and to participate in communion together. Um, it is a reminder that, that Christ is the center of all that we do and that we come together to worship him. And that entails all kinds of things. It, it means loving one another, ministering to one another. It means abiding in Christ and being reminded that we are in Christ and so members of one another. And it comes through the, the proclaiming of the good news of the gospel through, as, as delivered through God's word. And so that's why, we, that's why we do a sermon. That's why we preach the Bible. Because this is, this is how we are able to most clearly and reliably like, hear the voice of God and understand who this God is that we are worshiping. Like why we know to observe this and to pray for one another. It's all from, from Scripture. It's the Holy Spirit revealing through Scripture. And so um, we continue in our series in the books of, book of Acts. So if you have your Bible with you, please open to Acts chapter 17. And I realize I'm being rude. My name is Jay, and I'm one of the pastors. And if you're new here, you may not have any idea who I am. And so that's who I am. And um, I really would love to meet you. So please, afterwards, if you are new here, especially if you're new here from um, Coleman or from the, the, would you say Minneapolis? Yeah, if you're from, you did, okay. If you're from the greater Minneapolis metro area, which evidently is central and even eastern Wisconsin. But um, if you're from that, then then stay with us. Stay and have lunch afterwards. You don't have to have brought anything. We will have food. I will give you my plate. I, will, I, I didn't bring anything either, honestly. So, um, so I'm mooching also, so you'd be in good company. Um, so let's turn our attention to Acts 17. Let's pray. Father, help us be faithful to your word. Help us, like the Bereans, to be noble in our hearing. Help us to be eager. And give us wisdom to examine the scriptures so that we may see what is true and good and beautiful. And that through the Spirit, you would transform us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Acts 17, we're going to actually skip ahead to, to verse 10. So we're, ba- we're mainly going to be in verses um, 10 through 12 um, this morning. Uh, next week, Jeff is going to kind of encapsulate what's going on with the Thessalonians, and then we're going to actually um, give an overview of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So we're grouping those two weeks together, and we decided to kind of pull out this section in the middle to, to deal with this. In verse 10, it says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So we see this pattern, by the way, in Acts, where Paul and, and Silas, or whoever he's traveling with, they go into a city, and as was their custom, they, they first go into the synagogue. And they are trying, they are preaching to the Jews that are gathered in the synagogue, demonstrating from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. 
And we see this over and over and over again. We've talked about like how Paul's message, now the apostles' message over and over and over again is Jesus is the Christ. And through his life, death, and resurrection, we have been made right before God and adopted as his sons and daughters. So this is their message, and they go into the synagogues, and and people are wrestling with this as they're trying to point to the prophecies and saying this all points to Jesus. And sometimes that goes really well, and sometimes it does not go well at all. And this passage right here is, is one that's often held up as like this beautiful example of what it looks like to be God's people, to hear the teaching of God's word, and, and to examine and to seek and to search to see, is, are these things true? It's often a passage that's kind of taken out to um, demonstrate why Bible study is, is so important. And that is certainly a very good application point, And we will see some of that in here. But there's more here. We want to be like the Bereans and emphasize the examination of the scriptures and the way that they do it. They're posture is what made their examination fruitful. Paul uses words like noble to describe them. There's an eagerness about them when they received the word. And it was in that context with noble hearts and and eager hearts that they examined the scriptures to see if they were true and, and God used that to move in them. And this is really important today. It's really critical that we, as the body of Christ, learn how to do this. Learn how to hear things and to discern, is this true? To be able to go to the word of God and to be able to examine and say, is is this true or is this not? Is this good? Is this not? Is this a perversion of God's truth? Is it partly true, but but not, not fully? Because in the day, in this day today, we don't really know who to trust. So many times I've heard people say, especially um, as it comes, say, to the pandemic, and say, like, well, I would love to be able to research. I'd love to be able to know what, what the truth is about all of this, but where do I go? There's, like, this lament from most of the culture of saying, I don't, I don't know who to trust. Everyone has an agenda. Everyone's trying to push something. Everyone's twisting things so that it supports their own view And even if I wanted to know what exactly is going on, I wouldn't even know where to go. And I see the enemy doing that in the church. We see a great division in the evangelical church today. And we keep talking about it. I keep preaching about it because I think it's so critical. I think it's the critical issue in front of us. It matters very much in our everyday lives because we don't know who to trust. And this has been a time of great pruning in the church. And I hope that it leads to a time of revival. That's what the design of pruning. Pruning is meant to cut back so that new explosive growth can come. And that's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm hoping for. But that still remains to be seen. And I would argue that the church needs the heart of the Bereans now more than ever that we would be noble in our hearing, that we would be eager in receiving the word, and that we would know how to examine the scriptures daily. 
So he says in verse 11, they were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. But if you're sitting there going like, well, what, what were the Jews like in Thessalonica? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's right before that. The, the verse is right before. Jeff's going to go into detail next week about this, but, but the, I'll just look quickly at the previous verses. Similar to what Paul does in Berea, he goes into Thessalonica and goes into the synagogue and preaches and demonstrates that Jesus is the Christ. And it says that many Greeks were persuaded these would have been Hellenistic Jews. These would have been Greeks who, who loved God and followed him. And they are in the, there in the synagogue. They're hearing it. And they are persuaded. But look at verse 5, if you have your Bible there, in Acts 17. It says, But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So this is the contrast. The Bereans, who received this word with eagerness... And they examine the scriptures to see if it's true, contrasting that with the Jews in Thessalonica who, rather than eagerness, are jealous. And they turn their attention to attacking the apostles and the messengers to protect their own kingdom. This is the contrast that Paul is making. So first, he contrasts the jealousy of the Thessalonian Jews with the eagerness of the Berean Jews. It's interesting they mentioned they were jealous. What were they jealous about? Like, why was that the motivation? It's interesting that's the motivation for how they, like, decide to go about attacking Paul and Silas and the others. They couldn't handle Paul coming in and having this kind of influence. So they attacked them. They couldn't handle, like, they had the system set up. Everybody was afraid of them. Everybody looked to them as the authority. Everybody looked to them, gave them power, gave them reference, gave them status. And now here's Paul coming in saying, Jesus is our king. It's his work, not ours. And that made the Thessalonian Jews jealous. And it's not noble. Their jealousy reveals that they are more concerned with their own standing, their own status, than the actual word of God. When they hear it, and they hear something that pushes against what their understanding has been, they look at what they would lose if this is true, and it's not worth it. They would rather keep their castles built on sand than to abandon them for a house on the rock. They would rather keep their appearance of being the holy and righteous and powerful ones and to keep their power than to give it away and gain Christ. See, the Bereans were not focused on themselves. When they hear this gospel message, they're not thinking about themselves and what they would have to give up and what this means about what they've always thought or always believed. They are most concerned with what is true and good and holy. And that is noble. This was Paul's experience as well, 
Robbie just went through this in Philippians. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Imagine when Paul's confronted by Jesus. When Jesus, when Jesus confronts him and says, I am Jesus, I am the Christ who you are persecuting. Paul is faced with a moment there of is he going to protect his own world, his own life, his own status, his own situation. Or is he going to give it all up and count it all as loss to gain Christ? Everything Paul had earned, he gave, gives it all up. And he says, it's worth it. He says, I gave it all up. I counted it all loss. I counted it all garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. That's the heart of the Bereans. They're hearing this message and they're saying, like, if that's true, I have to know that. I don't worry. I'm not going to protect myself. I'm not worried about me in this. Like, I, I want more of Jesus. I want more of God. If, if Jesus is the Christ, I need to know. And that's different than the idea of I hear something that I don't like that pushes against my understanding, my way of life, and I fight, and I, my first instinct is to protect myself. It's in my experience, the hardest truths to teach from the Bible are the ones that cost something. The ones that require us to look and to confront the attitudes and the hearts and the beliefs that we have held for a long time and to realize like that may not be what God is actually saying. That this belief that I've held for a long time might actually be a product of my culture and not from God's word. I know this because when, you, when we preach in wealthy countries, people don't like to hear what the Bible teaches about money. The self-righteous don't like to hear what the Bible teaches about sin in my own heart. The powerful don't like to hear what the Bible teaches about becoming a servant of all and looking after the least of these. The carnal person doesn't like to hear what the Bible teaches about denying yourself. Like a key question to ask whenever you're hearing something taught and it makes you cringe. A clarifying question that I've found in my life that is helpful is to say, what would this cost me if it were true? So when I've heard teachings on people like giving up everything and looking to scripture and saying like, am I supposed to sell everything I own? And if I ask myself, okay, that, oh, that makes me cringe. Like, am I really supposed to do that? Do we really need to do that? Like one of the questions I want to ask is, well, what would this cost me if this is true? And if the answer is it would cost me my stuff, then I want to name that and put that off to the side and say, well, that's wrong. That's not a good motivation to want to deny this. That doesn't mean that whatever was said was true, but it's saying like, it's just good inventory to pull that out and say, okay, this would cost me. Well, if this is true, this might cost me um, my status. This might cost me like what other people think of me. And we can name those things and get them out there so we can say, that is not what I want to be about pursuing. I want, I want more of Christ. I think I've shared this before, but I was one time listening to a sermon. I was at a church that we were part of and hearing a sermon. And I had gone into that day and I had felt a, a season of feeling really dry in my prayer life. I don't know if you've ever been there where you're just like, I just don't, I just don't know. I don't feel like God is hearing me. I don't know if he's hearing me. I don't know if I'm talking to myself. I'm not motivated to pray. I don't feel like I'm hearing from him. And I was in that place, and I'd been wrestling with that. And I hear this sermon, 
And in the middle of the sermon, it wasn't even the main point of the sermon, the pastor reads this passage. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And he kind of gave like just an, oh, by the way, if you're feeling like your prayers are hindered, husbands, it might be because you're not loving and serving your wife well. And my first thought was, well, that's not true. That's not it. Like, I'm a pretty good husband, right? Like, I, I love my wife. I serve my family. Right, Lauren? Like, I'm pretty, I'm, all right. <laughs> Could have nodded a little more when I was actually saying it the first time. That's fine. Whatever. Okay. Um, no, like, I'm sitting there thinking, like, you know, hey, I'm not, I'm not bad. And then, like, oh, man. Then I start looking around and be like, well, you know, better than that guy. Like, I know what he's doing. Like, I'm, like I love my family. I spend time with my kids. I, I do all this. And so immediately protecting myself. Like, I'm literally struggling with this thing. And God puts this in the middle of a sermon that isn't even about this to say, hey, by the way, Jay, if you're feeling like your prayers are being hindered, it may be that you're missing something in loving and serving your, your wife. And my eagerness to search whether that was true was determined by how important it was to me that my prayer life not be hindered. Do you see the, the connection there? If I look at that and I say, you know what? No, I'm not going to acknowledge. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything egregious. Like, there's nothing there for me. Then what I'm saying is that when that comes up, I'm saying, like, my prayer life is just not that important. Yeah, I'd like to have a better prayer life, but it's not worth it. But the other side is to hear something like that and to say, I have to know if that's true. If that's what's going on, if I can have more of Christ by realizing that I, if I need to serve my wife more, I need to love my wife in a, a more real, tangible way. And so by the grace of God, I started to confront that and say, like, what would this cost me? What would it cost me that whatever my rhythms of life are? It would cost me my identity as being a good husband. It would cost me, like, I would have to confess maybe to some brothers that I've been walking with and saying, like, I don't, I don't think I'm serving my wife well. You start to name those things and put it off to the side and say, I don't want that to be a hindrance to more of Christ. Like, if that's true, like, show me. You start searching the scriptures in Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 13, and other passages where I just start reading and saying, like, I, I'm not serving my wife well. I'm serving her well according to the structure and the, and the rules that I had set up and my definitions of what it meant, but God had something more for me to serve her more deeply, love her more deeply. And as I did that, my prayer life just increased. Like the fact is that for many of us, when we hear something that makes us cringe, what is being offered just isn't that important to us. It's not as important to us as keeping the mirage of our own kingdoms. And if we're honest, the first line of defense we often have when, when reading or receiving the word that kind of pushes against us is not, is it true, but it's do I like it? Do I agree with it? And if it costs me something, I don't typically like it. So name it. 
Get it out of the way. That's part of how the, the Bereans are being noble in their hearing, is that they are eager to hear these things. Paul runs into this all the time. So does Jesus. The idea of people defending themselves in their own kingdoms. They might be interested in what they're saying. They might follow, they follow Jesus around. They're intrigued by the things he was doing and saying. But they weren't eager to find out if it was true. They didn't have to have it. They were good with what he was doing as long as they found it entertaining or as long as it benefited them. But the second that it cost them something they would go. They would leave. They didn't see it as a treasure hidden in a field. Which, when a man finds it, and he covers it up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. That's the heart of the brainsness, the eagerness of, I'm willing to give up everything. If what you're saying about Jesus is true, if what you're saying about he is the Christ, if I can gain that, I will give up everything. There's nothing, whatever, whatever you want. All my law-keeping, all my righteousness, all my everything. I'll give it all up. I want to hear. I want to know if that is true. That is eagerness. I have to know what you're saying, God. I have to know what you are doing. If this is true, I have to know. It's the opposite of jealousy. The other thing he contrasts is the slander and the attacks of the apostles. He contrasts that with the examination then of the scriptures. So here's what's going on. The, the, the Jews in Thessalonica, out of their jealousy, out of their desire to protect their own kingdom and their own little world that they'd created for themselves, they attack the messengers. They spread rumors and lies, forming a mob to literally attack them. And that stands in contrast to the Berean Jews who examine the scriptures daily to see if these things are true. So one, their goal is to protect the thing that they had built. So when that thing is threatened, they attack the people who threaten it. Does that make sense? The other group is their desire is Christ. And to know if these things are true. And so their attention and energy goes to examining God's word to see if this is true. Their focus and their attention and their energy go to two completely different things. One is perverted and the other is noble. Because a noble heart has integrity to give an honest hearing and try to wrestle through and examine the scriptures. Not to immediately be turned off by something and be like, well, no, that's not the way, that's not the way that I've always known it and so I'm just shutting myself off to that. That is, that is a heart of protecting myself and my world. But a heart that says, okay, show me. Let me see. Nobility means we don't twist words or create a straw man or act dismissively. It means, in part, we give an honest hearing. And that is something that is just lost in our culture today, isn't it? Have you ever tried to explain yourself, your point of view, to somebody who holds the opposing point of view? Do you feel listened to? Do you feel understood? Do they ask a lot of clarifying questions? If they do, then don't you feel loved in that? But I think all of us have had the experience of somebody just twisting everything you say. And man, oh, so you're saying this, so you're saying this doesn't matter, and you're saying this, and it's so frustrating, it's so infuriating, and it's so sinful, and it is not noble. We need to be people 
who give honest hearings. And first and foremost, from the word of God. To not twist or look for ways to dismiss it and look for things to catch people in, but to honestly hear from the Spirit through God's word so we can have more of him. Let me ask you a question. We've asked this before. I think it's really critical. When you represent an opposing view, do you do so fairly? Do you do so honestly and with integrity? Do you do so in a way that the person who believes that thing would say, that's a really fair representation? Yes, that is, that's why I believe what I believe. We're not very good at that. We're especially not good at that in the church. I'm going to run a risk. I'm not going to name any names, but I really, it drives me crazy. Movies, Christian movies that paint um, atheists out to be like these immoral monsters who are just denying what is so obvious to everybody. It drives me crazy because it's not noble. There's no integrity in that. And we've seen generationally that training our young people in the church to think that atheists are just big dummies who can't see what's right in front of their faces has not done any good. It sets them up for confusion when they go to college and meet a professor who is an atheist who is brilliant and kind and reasonable. And it shatters their whole view. It is so much better to help people understand this is why this person holds this view. This is what, how they view the world and so this is how they understand it. And this is why this is what makes sense. These are legitimate issues and questions that they bring up to our worldview and how we view through the lens of Christ. And I get an objection a lot of times. Well, but if you make the other side seem so reasonable, then aren't you just tempting people to believe in that? Not if I believe in the Holy Spirit. Not if I believe the Holy Spirit is the one who gives me faith to believe. Look, the, the Bible itself says that without the Spirit, we can't understand it. Right? Like, we don't understand. Like in 1 Corinthians 2, it says, We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The short version, until you are given new eyes by the Spirit, you and I, we can't understand the Scriptures. They are folly. They don't make sense. And so that should fill us with a desire that when we are sharing the gospel with people, when we see people that have an opposing view that is not a Christian worldview, to pray that God would give them eyes like he gave us eyes. Not to pretend that we came to believe in Jesus because we're just so smart and so moral and so good. That is heresy. It is blasphemous. We need to have confidence in the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth because, by the way, this is what Jesus says. Listen to this. This is such an amazing thing that I think we skip over a lot of times that Jesus says. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
That's saying, Jesus is saying, look, I got lots more to teach you, but you just can't handle it. Can't handle it right now. This does not contain everything that God has to teach you. It doesn't. Jesus said so. I know that makes us uncomfortable, but if we're confident in the Holy Spirit, then we can relax and know, well, I'm not, I shouldn't be more confident in my ability to master a finite text. I should want to have the wisdom of God through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says he's going to lead you into all truth. Trust him. And he says he's not going to speak on his own authority, but what he has heard, which is why we say things like the Holy Spirit will not teach you something that contradicts like what's in Scripture. Right? Like nobody can come forward and say, well, the Holy Spirit told me that there's lots of ways to salvation. Be like, well, that's not true. Because God's really clear through his word that like that Jesus is the way. So the Holy Spirit's not going to contradict Jesus. But he does lead us into truth and understanding. And so in scripture, when there are things like, like good luck finding gender dysphoria in here. Like how do you deal with that in public schools? We need the Holy Spirit to guide us. Not our own laws that we create out of principles from this and construct in our own and kind of preserve our own kingdom. We need the Holy Spirit. So listening with nobility means I I count all things lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And it means I trust the Holy Spirit to guide me in truth. So I'm not afraid to give an honest hearing. I'm not afraid to listen to my brother or sister you know, or, or like my neighbor who doesn't follow Jesus as they are talking about being pro-choice. Like I can give them an honest hearing and I can pray that God would give them eyes to see. I can listen to people when they are drawing out something in a church and, and people, brothers and sisters in the church are calling us out to repent over things like our role in the growth of abortion, our role in racism, our role in the, in the issue of like refugees, like all these things. Like We can listen to that and give an honest hearing because we are not afraid of what the Bible says. We're not afraid of what the Holy Spirit is going to show us. And we will gladly repent. We will gladly give up everything that we might gain more Christ. And that our prayers may not be hindered and that he would bring revival. Folks, I believe that that's one of the things that's going to happen if revival is going to come. And this is not what I was planning on talking about, but I feel like I need to say this. If you want revival, and here's so many people talking about revival. You're like, we need revival in our country. Yes, amen. Do you know how that's going to come? Through the church repenting. Always. When the people of God repent. When they aren't distracted by, yeah, but they did this and they did that. And well, they're doing this. We need to repent. And when we repent, we'll demonstrate the goodness of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that then we will see revival. But as long as we fight to protect little kingdoms that we have built, as long as we are saying, well, I'll live for Jesus, but not if it costs me any of this. As long as we are that, our hearts are hardened and revival will not come. Take that for what it's worth. So, back to the sermon. If we're going to examine the scriptures, how do we do this then? Like how? This is, I just want to kind of end with application of like practical. How do we do this then? Okay, great. I want to hear. I want to, I want to lay this down. I gave the tip of like first ask yourself, what does this cost me if this is true? Well, one of the things is you have to take God's word seriously. 
I mean, it's so easy to be flippant, and we're flipping on both ends of the aisle here. We're flippant and like, oh, you know, that's just so hard to understand. Like, I just want to follow the Spirit. Like, I don't need all the stuffiness of God's Word or whatever. That's not taking it seriously. But by the way, neither is reducing it down to only concepts that I and my finite human being under, mind can understand fully and completely and say, well, I understand the Bible, therefore I do everything right. That's also not taking it seriously. The Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts through bone and marrow, like to the heart. It is something you interact with. Like first you have to understand what it is. The Bible is God's self-revelation to us. It is living and active through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is who makes the Bible alive. It is not like it's it's not God's word like we don't look at it as a book but a communion table. Like think about how that would change if you went to God's word in the mornings and you saw it not as a book like you know, or a document like the Constitution or like your legal code or like, you know, rule book for life or any of these things, but you saw it as a communion table. You saw it as the place where you get to go to commune with God because you get to hear his very words and see how he's dealt with his people while he is with you and interacting with you. It's very different. When some people have said like the Bible, what's unique about the Bible is it, it, it reads you. It's the only book that reads you. That's true. Like any other book by human authors, I can read it, I consider it, I think about it, toss it around my mind, say like, okay, that's interesting, whatever, like this, don't like this. But with scripture, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in that moment. Like he's, he's reading this to you and is interacting with you. If you'd listen and have ears to hear, you'd see incredible things in it. So that's critical. Notice like when they found these things to be true, it says that they reason and, and therefore they, they found that these things were true. That was not merely by reason. It wasn't like, oh, would you look at that? It says it here. I guess they were right. We're not talking about just a couple of verses like Paul wrestles with. They wrestle with it daily, weeks. But something in their spirit was crying out. It was approved and confirmed by the Holy Spirit. By the way, be careful of people who would assume that the strictest interpretation of Scripture is the right interpretation. It's like some people will say, like, well, if you take the Bible seriously, then they'll, they'll take everything in it literally. And that's, that's a misnomer. That's not taking the Bible seriously. Taking the word of God seriously means taking it seriously, which means truly and rightly. Jesus speaks in metaphors and in parables. Scripture uses poetry and hyperbole. Taking God's word seriously means understanding what God is actually communicating through it. Not what I just think he must mean by something. And it can't be done apart from the Spirit. I mean, if you look at this, who... Who in this story takes the Bible more seriously, the Thessalonian or the Berean? The one who assumes he has everything figured out and has already shaped all of his beliefs and understands everything, or the one who knows that he's still learning and just wants more of Jesus? One of the things that's grieved me in this time is that pastors who used to take the Bible seriously now put their interpretations over and above the scriptures. I mentioned this before, but you'll know them by their fruit. They are grumpy and harsh and unkind. 
They, they misrepresent opposing views. They throw out labels in order to dismiss. And it's all because what they want is control. And they want to know that they are right. And they want everyone else to know they are right. Their aim is to protect the kingdoms they have built, just like the Pharisees. And they will use the Bible to support it. And in their claim that they take the Bible seriously, they pervert it and make a fool and of, of us and a tool of it for their own gain. That's not who the Bereans are. They hear news that pushes against what they've held for so long, but they are confident that God has not changed, and they believe if these things are true, they will see them in Scripture. And taking it seriously means understanding that. That the Bible is something we interact with and commune with. And it's also something we need to be immersed in daily. The Bereans already knew the word really well. It's another thing about this. They weren't like, oh, this is all brand new information. They're hearing prophecies that they knew. And so they're searching them and being like, is this, is this true? They were in it daily and they just kept going as they were examining it. The Spirit will bring mind. If you're immersed in it daily, the Spirit will bring to mind passages that have been hidden in your heart. We all, if you've been following Jesus and studying the Bible for any period of time, you know what that's like. You'll be over in this passage, you'll be like, I don't understand, I'm not really sure what's going on here. And all of a sudden in your heart, this other passage will come to mind. You're like, oh, and it sheds light on it. That's the Holy Spirit that's living and active. It's how we learn to recognize his voice. And if you're not immersed, immersed in his voice, then you can get tossed and you can be convinced by all kinds of things that sound good. You need to constantly be going to it, immersed in it. And it takes time. We just want quick answers, and it takes time. Also, you know, all those issues that I mentioned earlier, like abortion and racism and refugees, and I've had so many people say to me, like, well, what do you think needs to happen? You know what my answer is? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I'm just wrestling with all of this and still, like, wondering, like, how do I grieve and how do I, how do I uphold justice that is biblical and how do I make sure that I'm proclaiming that Christ is our salvation and that, like, all these different things, like, I'm just wrestling with all of this and wrestling with it daily. That's what we're called to do. And finally, we're called to do it in community. You can't do this in a vacuum. The danger for many people is that they say, well, I looked into it, I did my own research, and I came to this conclusion on my own. And we think that that somehow makes it more legitimate. Like, I wasn't influenced by anybody. That's, that's actually foolishness. Right? You really think you're smarter and more immersed in Scripture than thousands upon thousands of faithful Christians throughout history? Like, I'm not. Like, it has to be done in community. Just so you know, like, it's always a red flag to me when someone says, well, I've done my research. Great! Like, where? How? What? Like, are you, like, are you an expert in research? Like, have you gotten all of the resources? Like, no, usually what do we mean by that? I read two articles that had headlines that I already agreed with. It's, it's kind of silly, right? The, church, the person who has truly done their research is typically far more hum humble about their findings. And that's why we need one another. Imagine the scene as Paul is preaching this. They come back every week. They come back daily. They're wrestling with it together. 
They're pushing on each other and saying, yeah, but this is what it says here. Yeah, well, it says this here, and they're praying together. That's the beauty of this. We need to do that together. And if you aren't doing that, please get into community and do that. This is why area lunches are important to start to maybe spark some of those relationships so you can have brothers and sisters that you can wrestle through these things with. We can connect you with other people that can help you understand like different points of view than what, what you have. All right, I got to wrap up. Here's the bottom line. Here's one of the things I love about the the Bereans. They're not afraid. They are not afraid of what the Bible says or about what the Spirit will confirm in their hearts. They're not afraid because they know it's all worth it. And they go with eagerness and seriousness to the Scripture, believing that God's Word is true, believing that God has revealed himself to us and that we can know him. I'll give you one, one example in my life where this confronted me, and it's with baptism. So I was raised in a church where we baptized infants. So I was baptized as an infant. Um, no, I don't remember it at all. Um, but my parents loved Jesus. We're part of a church that that's what they did. And that's what was... That's what faithfulness meant at that moment for them was to have me be baptized. And then I became a part of a church. I served on a staff with a church that, that baptized believers like, like we do through immersion like after they've come to faith in Christ when they're of age. And there was a feeling in me like when they said, well, hey, if you're going to serve here, you, you need to be baptized. And that kind of pushed against me. All of a sudden, all these questions came into my mind of like, well, wait, are you saying like my baptism wasn't valid? Are you saying like my parents were wrong, that they were unfaithful? Are you saying that like I did something wrong by being baptized like that? And the Holy Spirit kind of convicted me of those things and said like, yep, those don't matter. Let's just set those aside over here. All that matters is what is the Holy Spirit saying to me through his word? What is Jesus asking me to do? How do I obey him? And so I searched the scriptures in that, and I just said, God, I don't, I don't, this isn't about me. This isn't about my mom and dad. This isn't about any of that stuff. This is just about me and you. Like, I want to follow you. Tell me what to do. And through examining the scriptures, I felt convicted that I, I wanted to get baptized. So at 27 years old, having been in ministry for several years, being seen as a leader in the church, I'm with, I'm joining the ranks of all the brand new believers saying like, I want to follow Jesus. And it was an incredible experience for me. These are the kinds of things that the door gets opened for. And I know many of you are in that situation here. And I just want you to know, by the way, that there are biblical defenses and biblical cases to be made for infant baptism. By the way, if you're, if you're here and you're with me in that and you're like, you were raised in a Baptist church and you're like, I don't understand. If you read the Bible, obviously you get dunked. Like, okay, I can give you some really good arguments on the other side. I really can. But here's the thing. It's not about rational arguments and reason in that. It's about saying, God, I want more of you. I'm going to search the scriptures. And I want to see, is this, is this what you're calling me to do? If it is, I'm going to go do it. By the way, I thank God every day for my parents that they baptized me as a baby. I thank them every day. They loved me 
and they showed, set an example for faithfulness of they, because they wanted to raise me in the ways that they felt to be faithful to God. And I'm so grateful for that. That's the beautiful thing about being confronted in these things. When we do say, okay, God, I lay all this down for you. I just want more of you. He's so gracious and kind. He says like, yes, good. I want, I want to give you more. Church, we need to do that. If we want to get through this era and we want to see revival, then our focus needs to be on Jesus. When we hear things that push against us, we need to say, okay, Holy Spirit, I'm coming to you through your word. I'm examining, like, show me. Show me if this is true. Show me if there's any unrighteous way in me. Let me repent of that. I want, I want to get rid of that because I want more of you. That's the heart of the Bereans, and that's the heart that we need here in this church and in our country and in our world. I found many Bereans here. The last seven years have been quite the roller coaster right here. People who have been here for seven years will tell you that. Some of you are kind of walking in and you're like, this is amazing. And you're like, yeah. Well, a lot of that is the faithful Berean-like work of some of the people that are sitting around you right now who faithfully said, I'm going to keep searching the scriptures and hearing from the Spirit, and I'm just going to keep worshiping Jesus, and I'm keeping my eyes fixed there. And now we're getting to see some of the fruit. So let's keep going. Let's keep going together. Let's be noble and eager and examine the scriptures together daily to see all that he has for us. Let's pray. Father, help us. God, it's so common. Like I, I, Every week I get up here and I say things and I just think, God, give... Give people ears to hear. God, I pray what I pray so often, which is take my broken, fumbly, rambly words and translate them into what is true and good and beautiful. And Lord, if we feel convicted by the things that we see or hear from your word, let us lay down ourselves, lay down our lives. Let us be reminded that you are worth losing everything. That you are worth everything. And let us be focused on you. We want more of you.